Here we go. Good day to you, and welcome to another episode of Shot by Shot, the official cinematography podcast of One Perfect Shot and Film School Rejects, hosted by OPS founder Jeff Todd and myself, H. Perry Horton. If you can hear this, then you found us on Stitcher and iTunes, where we hope you'll give us a follow. And if you're not familiar with the format, allow me to bring you up to speed. Each week, Jeff and I pick one film and select our three favorite shots from it. That's three shots apiece, then discuss why we picked what we picked. No plot, no thematic discussion, just shots. Simple enough, right? Of course it is. We're simple people. Today we're going to be talking about a film that is one of my favorites of the decade, and I know it's one of yours too, Jeff. Mad Max Fury Road, which was directed by George Miller and shot by John Seal. Well, do you remember the hesitation around this movie? I mean, it's almost like it lived as a rumor. This was the Kaiser Soze of film productions. It was, it was the kind of thing you were afraid to say aloud, lest you jinx it. It's like that, uh, it's like that, it's like that Terry Gilliam Man of La Mancha film. Oh, whoops, just ruined that one. Yeah, so let's step back and look at the set of facts we have surrounding this film. The, the, the production, the pre-production of this film. You have a 70-year-old filmmaker who's returning to an action franchise that's largely dormant for like 30 years. He does Beyond Thunderdome with a co-director, then does Witches of Eastwick, and then goes hard left with dramas and family films. But yeah, I mean, this felt like a film in pre-production for decades. There was always hints of cameras rolling. There was a parade of Frankenstein cars that would occasionally show up online and and tease the post-apocalyptic mechanical mayhem, but it, 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 it did. It always felt like a rumor, something whispered about but not really discussed. And I remember hearing Tom Hardy had signed up, Charlize Theron had signed up, the set photos started leaking at a pretty good clip, and then I heard that John Seal was coming out of retirement to shoot the film. It, it didn't look like a smooth production on the outside. You know, it, it, it kind of had everything working against it. It emerges not only one of the best shot action films of all time, it emerges one of the best films of all time, period, in my book. I think this movie is a game changer. It's a, it's a movie that's going to, it's going to force the industry to reckon with its success, just like The Matrix, Pulp Fiction, Jaws, Star Wars. It belongs on that list of game-changing cinema. Books are going to be written about this movie. Classes are going to be taught. I, I mean, I, I think it's that vital. I, I feel like it was in, produ- it was in pre-production the second Thunderdome wrapped. I, I feel like I feel like there are iterations of this script and this story that go back to, to 87, 88. Yeah, there was a version in 2001 with Mel Gibson, and that one was scrapped for financial reasons, and then 9-11 happened. There was a version in 2003 that was going to be shot in Namibia, but there was security concerns around the production, and I think there was also some financial issues as well. But there's no doubt that this had a very tough time taking off. But once Fury Road started filming, once the wheels started to turn, we became invested in this production, and the trailer was just kind of proof of life that this actually existed. Maybe that's why, it, maybe that's why it's got such a strong... I mean, you know, it deserves its strong reputation, but perhaps some of that is... I mean, we were, we were a part of this production the whole way through. I mean, you know, unlike the right. other Mad Max movies with the internet, we knew what was happening every step in the way, so we were expecting this to be utter shit. Or I think a lot of us were expecting it to fail to live up to expectations is the nice way of putting that. Right. But I mean, you hear about production troubles like this. You hear about actors not getting along like that. I mean, you, you, you start imagining utter shit. You start imagining right. Crystal Skull. Yeah, and when I first saw this film, as the credits were rolling, I remember looking at my buddy and just kind of doing the, you know, 
brushing my hands like a dealer at a blackjack table. It's like, he did it. George Miller won the action film genre, hands down. Oh, yeah, no, I think I think starting about two or three minutes into this film, my jaw just drops and doesn't close for two hours. Right. Like, I, he, he didn't just, Miller, Miller didn't just deliver. He delivered from frame one and every frame after that, which is, yeah, which is just really unusual for an action film, especially one that's just pure adrenaline. There, there's, there's a wonderful documentary to be made about the production of this film, the starts and stops, the hesitations. But the most important thing to take away from this, I think, beyond the sort of bountiful accomplishments of this movie, is that George Miller put in place a crew that realized his vision despite their resumes. And so what do I mean by that? If you look at, for example, the fight choreography, the fight choreographer on this film had done Happy Feet and Happy Feet Two. <laughs> you you well, can't tell me that like that was the guy. Like that was the guy. Was like, this I want this guy for Fury Road. If he could do that, the for way penguins, he moved those penguins for Australians. <laughs> yeah. So the so the guy's name is Greg Van Borsum. Uh, P.S. Dear Hollywood, get this man a fucking fight to choreograph, please. So and then let's look at the um, let's look at the original DP of this film, Dean Semler. Dean Semler, on paper anyway, was at the time the better choice for Miller. They're longtime friends. Semler has worked in the action genre. He shot The Road Warrior, Beyond Thunderdome. He gets the mechanics and position of camera as it relates to the intensity of the genre. And he certainly knows the franchise. The films that Semler has shot are... They're kind of hit and miss, but his work is nearly always impressive. Dead Calm, Dances with Wolves... Apocalypto. Uh, you also have the flip side of that. Paul Blart 2, Last Action Hero, Ridiculous 6. The Ridiculous 6? Is that the... Yeah. The Adam Sandler Netflix comedy that I'm using air quotes for. No. Oh, yeah, everybody man. on that should be billed as Alan Smithy. <laughs> Brothers got to work, right? Gotcha, I guess. Man, I guess that's all Kevin James, huh? I was like, I really like what you did on Blart Deuce. Come with me. Blart Deuce. That really should have been the name of that. Really? <laughs> so we're kind of jumping around here, but uh, so Dean Semler leaves the leaves Fury Road just a month or two before production started because there was some dispute about the, th- the, uh, the 3D cameras that George Miller was building from the ground up for Fury Road. But after Semler left, George Miller calls John Seal and essentially gives him like a day to think about it. And John Seal was in retirement and at, at this time. And if I had to guess, uh, I, I would think Fury Road's going to be his his last film. And how perfect is that? This is ending your career on one of the highest notes that you could imagine, short of winning an Academy Award, which he probably should have won. This is going out on top, showing everyone how it's done. That would be closing the book with an exclamation point. But anyway, John Seal wouldn't be anybody's first choice for a DP on an action film. He's wildly, wildly accomplished. Rain Man, Dead Poet Society, Harry Potter and Sorcerer's Stone. But he and Miller are close and Miller knew that he could trust Seal. And that trust paid off. It paid wild, wild dividends. Because argue all you want about Fury Road's place at the table when discussing the greatest action film of all time. And I would put it at maybe number two after Die Hard. But it's certainly the best shot action film of all time. And that brings me to my point. George Miller picked people who could realize his vision. He was more worried about what they could do rather than what they had done. And I think there's a lesson in there for every young filmmaker who's picking up a camera and every veteran filmmaker who has crawled up their own ass. Sometimes you just need to have faith and trust in people. 
John Seale's yeah. last film as director of photography before Mad Max Fury Road was The Tourist. That, uh, that Angelina Jolie, Johnny Depp. Yeah, what was the... Again, uh, very elegant, very elegant, very graceful. And if you look at his filmography, you're looking at movies, even the, the action films that he does do, like uh, uh, Prince of Persia or yep. Dreamcatcher or Talented Miss Ripley. They have this very European, graceful, elegant, sort of old Hollywood flair to them, which is right. the... The opposite of, of everything that Mad Max is, which is just, you know, raw and powerful. and Yeah, he has a very kind of Freddie Young eye for cinema. Freddie Young shot Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago. Um, what are some other things that, that he shot? Like, uh, You Only Live Twice. I mean, look at Seal's work on, like, The English Patient or Cold Mountain. This is a guy who who shoots films the way they used to be shot until Fury Road, which changes the way films are shot. You know what I mean? It's it's just it's a it's a fascinating career. And it makes and it makes Fury Road stand out all the more, I think. We're going to take a quick break, check out the trailer for Mad Max Fury Road, and when we come back, Perry and I will each select our top three shots from cinematographer John Seal's work on the film. In this wasteland, I am the one who runs from both the living <laughs> And the dead. A man reduced to a single instinct. Survive. It is by my hand you arise from the ashes of this world. I'll start off, and I'm going to start off with, with what I'm willing to bet, at least based on the numbers it gets every time we tweet it on the One Perfect Shot account, with what I think is the, probably the most popular shot of the film, and it's that wide shot 
of Furiosa in profile uh, on her knees in the dirt, screaming her anguish to the sky. This happens right after Furiosa and the five wives come across the Vuvalini, uh, and the Keeper of Seeds has told her that the green place, her Eden, this safe place that she was trying to get these women to, uh, it's the swampy quagmire that they had just passed through in the previous sequence. This is a moment of just utter helplessness because Furiosa isn't incapable. In fact, she's entirely capable. She might be the most capable person in this entire film. She achieved what she set out to do. She got the wives out of the city to the spot, but the spot's gone. The world, this sandy, barren, desolate world has just once again conspired against her. This is the single moment in which she realizes that her effort alone isn't going to be enough, that there's there's luck and fate to have a hand in things too, but they never seem to side in her favor. This shot is the plight of women in this world, and maybe possibly ours, and her powerful form crippled by torment against this vast wasteland surrounding her, I think perfectly articulates that notion. Yeah, this is probably one of the top five, top three shots of all time on One Perfect Shot. Oh, easily, easily, and certainly the most modern shot. Yeah, and this is a fascinating shot to me because this really is the uh, this is the film in a in a single frame. This is the plight of Furiosa. This is her laid bare. Um, there's that shot before she drops to her knees of her taking off her prosthetic arm, and she is utterly, utterly broken. And it's also encapsulating the importance of Furiosa to this story. Max is a thread into this world. Max is a a supporting character within his own film. And I think this shot in particular shows you the trust and confidence the story has in Furiosa to carry this movie and how invested we are in her character because we are heartbroken watching her suffer through this, watching her realize that this her own personal Valhalla is gone. And it's so patient and it's so unassuming the way that long shot just kind of lingers there as the sand blows towards the screen. I I, I love it. Because it is an expression of power. Like that is a guttural scream. She is, I mean, she is expending every last bit of power that she has in her, but it's just, it's just not enough. And the way the sand is sweeping by her and there's nothing else, but just desolation. Like there's just, there's nothing she can do about it. And it's, it's just one of the most, it's, it's legitimately one of the most powerful nonverbal moments in film that I can think of. I agree a hundred percent. So for my first shot, you know, I was going to talk about the opening of Fury Road because I think for such a loud and fast film, it's funny that it opens with Max kind of quietly considering where he is both physically and mentally. From that point on, the film is kind of pedal to the metal. It's breathlessly paced, but it remains coherent because the camera is always kind of telling you exactly where to look, which leads me to a technique I want to I want to talk about instead of a shot. I want to talk about the push-ins, pull-outs, and fast motion shots from Fury Road, all of which are used to create and suggest speed, distance, and intensity, especially during the car chases. The camera will start with a wide shot of the car, then zoom in to see the character driving the bastard creation or a gesture. This is the kind of film that when you leave the theater, you have a very real chance of getting a speeding ticket. And that feeling of speed... You know, it surely exists in the the long shots of the vehicles, but it's even more intense on the camera pushes. And I think that if you look at the Fast and Furious films, they were very good at creating a sense of speed and motion. If you think back to the first film, they kind of blur that background to give you the idea of speed. And it works. Um, and, and I think it still kind of works. But 
when you push in on vehicles that are already going like 50 miles an hour in real time, it's that same kind of experience, but in a more real and practical way. And I don't know if, if Fury Road works without those push-ins and, and, and pull-outs and, and fast motion shots. It would become a different type of experience. And I, think, I, and I think the film works largely as a result of that technique, or at least has the kind of intensity that it does because of that technique that's no that's a really good point because that's a you know cinematography isn't just perfect shots it's also repeated techniques that lend themselves to the narrative and that's easily the the most repeated and and most sort of valuable non-still cinematographical geez that's a tough word to say uh, aspect of that film because it is it is used to great effect every single time so even though it's repeated it's never wasted which is important because balance in, in something like that is very important and this could easily get out of hand as it does in, in, in other movies. Uh, just think of, you know, technique in particular, you just think of, you know, the hateful eight and how much Tarantino uses the split diopter. It gets to a point where it's distracting, but in, in Fury road, these pushes and pulls, they're balanced by nice wide pans and, and more sweeping giant shots that sort of take the edge off of it and just blend it into the narrative. Yeah, and that's a good point with uh, with the hateful eight because when when filmmakers do use the same kind of camera tricks again and again, especially in the same film, it does start to get repetitive and it does lose its punch. But Fury Road, those push-ins always remain fresh. They always deliver the kind of intensity that they set out to deliver. So it doesn't feel like a gimmick. It feels like it's a, it, it feels like it's a part of this world. I would equate it to, and I don't know if uh, how well you know it, but I, I would equate it to Damien Chazelle's use of the whip pan. Um, which he does a lot in Whiplash, and he does it in La La Land. And we we had an essay or a video go up on on FSR this week about it. But that's another one that the whip pan is a very artificial technique. It's one that that if you use it too much, it, it really stands a chance of pulling you out of the cinematic universe and you know sort of revealing yeah. it as fake. But that's another yeah. instance where you know sort of pacing and intentional use of it in specific parts makes it effective and. and sort of dilutes its potential to distract. You can also look at Edgar Wright's use of the smash zoom, whether it's for comedic effect or a tooling up montage. Those always deliver the kind of intensity that they set out to accomplish. Comedic effect or otherwise. Let's jump to number two, your second favorite shot. My second shot is the wide shot of Nooks, uh, played by Nicholas Holt and Capable, played by Riley Keough. And they're sitting in the back of that tricked out VW bug at night and her head's on his shoulder, both of them looking up at the stars. Everything around them is that beautiful, rich blue that the night scenes are, while shining on them is just the faintest flickering white light. You know, color scheme of all the night shots, offering just a, a real sweet relief visually from the harsh, blinding yellow of the desert and daylight. This shot, I think, is the most peaceful in the film, and furthermore, I think it might be the most hopeful. This shot is an oasis. It's, it's a pause from the relentless action and the constant stress of the film. It's a silent, cool-hued little moment tucked into the chaos, and it's showing us that besides, you know, besides war and chaos and hate, love is still also possible in this world, even between such star-crossed candidates as Nux and Capable. Without this shot, and in fact, without a lot of the night sequence, I believe, Fury Road could have been too furious, you know? Like, you need something to temper the madness, something to put it in perspective. And this shot, for my money, does that better than any other in the film. So this film was always going to be made in post-production. You never had to worry about continuity of color or lighting or weather seal didn't really use grades or filters because you can add them in post. And I, and I think Miller gave him specific directions uh, as to that effect. But I think what's, 
what's fascinating for me with this film is is its use of color. Um, it, it's by and large uh, shot practically. They use CGI to enhance color, to enhance explosions, to enhance environment to a certain degree. But the blue is so stunning in this. And that pop of light you get from inside that cab is so warm. And, you know, even though we've, we've kind of been silently rooting for Nux the whole time, this is when you become invested in that character. When you start to, you, you know, your heart kind of breaks for him a little bit. Um, you start rooting for him. You start realizing what he has to lose and what he's fighting for. And it's also a moment for the for the audience itself to kind of pause. I think if that Furiosa scene is the the emotional anchor for the film, then this is the moment where we can all collectively remember to breathe again and to kind of center ourselves for that last fight that we're about to join these uh, this crew of misfits on. For me, it's the it's it's the start of like this is why him, you know, like, like why is this one dude singled out of all these similar dudes? Like he hasn't done anything exceptional. He hasn't done anything that indicates, you know, a, a greater sense of humanity. But then w- with this scene and sort of maybe the, the two or three building up to it and everything after, like, this is where he becomes more human. This is where he becomes, you know, kind of the Smeagol of this thing. Like he's just a bad guy in a bad situation doing what he can to survive. And he's addicted to that Chrome stuff. But I mean, this is where he he starts to become someone you can believe in and someone that you can hope for. For my second pick, I'm going with the fight scene between Max and Furiosa. I remember scrolling through Twitter when there was a premiere of this film, and Pat Oswald uh, had a tweet that said he was he was he compared the film to snorting ten cubic feet of meth and then jumping into a gasoline fire. I don't know the exact moment he felt like that, but my guess is it was after this fight scene. And I want to kind of go back to something I was saying a little bit before. Film is collaboration. You have to trust your crew. It's not what they've done. It's what you know they're capable of doing. And this moment, this fight, which was choreographed by Greg Van Borsum, uh, edited by Margaret Cecil, for which she won the Academy Award for, effortlessly shot by John Seal. Uh, this fight scene exhibits incredible patience and a spectacular attention to geography. Fight scenes are Fight scenes are really difficult to shoot. A director told me one time that you don't know how good or bad your crew is until you film a fight scene. And I think that the art of the fight scene has been largely lost on cinema. And I don't, I don't blame the Bourne films. And I don't blame the shaky camp. Bourne films have as many bad fights as they do good fights. But it's how you use the tool. It's not the tool itself. And Fury Road took a more classic path to the action by setting the camera back, by understanding its geography and and where to direct your eye. So the viewer isn't having to reorient themselves every half second, having to figure out what their geography is, where they should be looking. What's amazing about this fight is that everybody has a handicap. Max has a mask. Furiosa is missing her pers- her, uh, her prosthetic arm. So it introduces variables. And despite being in this wide open desert, it feels like a close quarters fight. You might as well be in the train fight and from Russia with love with Grant and Bond because they don't use a lot of space, which just like the camera pushes creates an intensity, but also a desperation in every action and every punch and every motion. There's something like 150 to 200 cuts in this fight. Margaret earned her Academy Award and John Seal, in my opinion, is now responsible for one of the best shot fight scenes in film history. John Wick, The Raid, they all have great fight scenes, if we're talking modern cinema. But neither of them have the kind of fight scene that is shot 
so flawlessly, so perfectly like this fight scene. Perry, what do you got for your third and final shot? Two white middle-class males talking about the plight of women in the post-apocalypse. You can't find anybody better prepared to explain this than us. That's the new tagline for our podcast. Join two super white middle-class dudes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, for my third shot and final shot of, of the discussion, I picked the full shot of the old woman in Morton Joe's chambers. And she's standing with a shotgun pointed right at the camera. And the words, we are not things are scrawled on the wall behind her. This is the room where Joe keeps his five wives, his breeders in reality. And this moment is him discovering that they've escaped. And with the help of his top imperator to boot, I never know if I'm saying that word right. The film to this point has mostly followed the patterns of the old franchise, that is, overt masculinity and everything from the character design to the fight sequences to the muscle cars on crack to just the overall testosterone-fueled atmosphere of this particular apocalypse. But this shot I'm describing provides the first notion of Fury Road's decidedly feminist slant. It tells us that, yes, like the other films, this one is going, this one as well is going to be male-dominant, but unlike the other films... That's going to be that dominance is going to be challenged here, and it's going to be challenged head on too. Furthermore, the perspective of the shot, having the woman facing us instead of, say, a profile shot of her staring down Joe, implicates the male gaze of the audience as well, which heightens, I think, our emotional engagement with the film. So here's a uh, a, a little bit of one perfect shot history. We tweeted that shot after Trump's "grab them by the pussy" comment. Closest we ever came to going legitimately viral. It it did. Yeah. It had thousands of retweets because that scene in particular, I think, you know, not only does it speak to our current circumstances that we found ourselves in, in that political climate and, and still continue to find ourselves in, but it spoke to feminism in film, feminism in action films and feminism in general. But I think more specifically, and by the way, people far more intelligent than me are going to have that that discussion, as they should, because it's an important one to have. In fact, there was an article on Birth Movie's death a couple weeks ago about Fury Road and, and the feminism in the film that's worth reading. But more specifically to the film, this is a moment saying the women are in charge now and proudly admitting that and kind of setting us up for the role reversal we see where Furiosa is the lead character. Mad Max is now the supporting character. So it's kind of a... a a change in tone that the film autom- that the film takes inspired by that scene almost and so i've always found it fascinating and it also speaks to the the ambiguity of the sex slaves what their world was like uh, inside morton joe's uh lair his kingdom and the film really only ever hints at that it's based on this one scene that we're kind of able to extrapolate what life was like. And this is also an example of the rich subtext that is within Fury Road. It's almost like the patriarchy of the very narrative is keeping the subplot of, of the, the women's backstory down, which is which is just another another way of, of illustrating just their position in, in this particular world. And, you know, by proxy of that, emphasizing just how powerful the women we are watching are. Right. All right. And for my third and final shot, I'm going right back to the beginning. I kind of tipped my hat to this at the uh, at the beginning of the podcast. But for such a loud and fast film, I find it hilarious that it opens with this kind of dark monologue and then Max standing next to his interceptor on that clip. And Max is kind of considering where he is physically and mentally. He's kind of taking inventory of the moment. 
And then after that, the film is just pedaled to the metal. It's breathlessly paced, but remains coherent. I keep saying that over and over again because it it's almost mystifying how fast this movie is, how quick the cuts come, but yet how coherent it remains. This film left a tremendous impact on me. And Hollywood won't be able to make another action film unless they really consider what Fury Road did well. It also provided a heroine for little girls to admire, to look up to. This is, for for some little girl, this is going to be her generation's Ripley. This is her generation's Sarah Connor. But it opens with that long shot with Max's back to the camera while he's on that cliff. And it's kind of this hero shot. But then the hero steps aside. And I love that moment. And this that moment alone will will forever be burned in my in my head. That shot. Because that was the first time I saw an action film that completely changed the way I would see additional action films. And I would also recommend seeing the black and chrome edition because once you strip away that color, you're forced to focus on the characters. The only other film I can think of that does it, uh, The Mist. Yeah, kind of in the opposite way. I could do an entire show on The Mist. That film... Oof, a lot of feelings on that film. Uh, but we're up against the clock. Perry, why don't you close this thing out? All right, before we go, just another reminder, you can subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app by simply searching One Perfect Pod and clicking what you find. When you subscribe, you'll get access to the entire family of One Perfect Podcasts, three shows strong and growing. You can also visit filmschoolrejects.com slash pod for additional information. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes and let us know how we're doing. On social media, you can follow the site on Twitter using at OnePerfectShot and on Facebook by adding backslash OnePerfectShot to the URL. If you want to follow Jeff and myself, we're both on Twitter as well. Him, at TheJeffTodd, that's Jeff with a G, and I'm at H. Perry Horton. And last but not least, any questions, comments, concerns, or cash you want to share with us can be done so by emailing pod at filmschoolrejects.com. Okay, that's it. A lot of stuff, but that's it. Next week, we're presenting an exclusive interview with the Oscar-nominated cinematographer of Martin Scorsese's Silence, Rodrigo Prieto. Until then, good viewing. See you, kids. 